up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a geriatrics expert discusses the over-medication of seniors. It's a huge issue as we get older. We tend to pile up the medications. We are a very pill-oriented society. An emergency physician explains how virtual emergency department visits work. So what we've tried to tell people is if you were thinking about going to an urgent care, instead consider seeing us because you can see us from the comfort of your home. Skin infections, medication refills, those sorts of things are perfect for this type of service. And a neurosurgeon tells about a new robotic tool that increases precision in brain surgeries. The benefit of the robot is that because we can so accurately place these leads where we want them to be placed, we can avoid vessels we see on imaging and that leads to less likelihood of a postoperative deficit. All that along with a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On today's show, we'll learn how a virtual emergency department visit works. Then, a neurosurgeon introduces a new robotic tool he uses in brain surgery to treat epilepsy. But first, we explore the risks and what you can do to prevent the over-medication of seniors with an expert in geriatrics. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. As we grow older, we're more likely to develop long-term health conditions that require taking multiple medications. Many older people also take over-the-counter medications, vitamins, or supplements. As a result, older adults have a higher risk of over-medication and unwanted drug reactions. Talking with me about this subject is Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the Chief of Geriatrics at Upstate and a former president of the American Geriatrics Society. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Brangman. Thanks for inviting me. Is it true that adverse drug reactions are responsible for more than 700,000 hospital emergency room visits each year? Sure. It's a huge issue as we get older. As you mentioned, we tend to pile up the medications. We are a very pill-oriented society. There are commercials on TV for all sorts of ailments that has a magic pill that you can take. And they always show people walking on the beach and having a great time after they take the pill. And then they talk about the side effects really fast at the end. And nobody pays attention to that. So sometimes there is a cost because there is no magic pill. Every pill has to be weighed very carefully for its benefits and the side effects. And I can imagine if you multiply that by a number of pills that you're taking, you've got to weigh all of that all at once, right? So that's true because sometimes the two drugs or three drugs or four drugs are all interacting with each other and they can give you symptoms that look like another disease and then you end up getting another drug to treat that when really what's going on are the bad reactions from the first two drugs. So when we have patients come to our office and we ask them to bring all of the pills that they take, whether they're prescription or things they buy over the counter, we're often amazed at how many bags people need to carry all their medications in. And it's better to have the bag itself rather than just a list, right? Because you can see precisely what it is. We actually prefer to see the actual container that the medicine comes in so we can make sure that it's accurate and there hasn't been any mistakes. We can also see the date the prescription was written so we can tell if it's a fresh prescription or or if it's one that's been hanging around a long time. And patients sometimes don't even know why they're taking a pill. They just said, oh, my doctor told me I would need this pill for my heart. And they don't really know what it was for or really what side effects it might cause. Well, I want to ask you uh, about some measures that maybe would help prevent some adverse reactions. What do we need to consider when it comes to over-the-counter medicines, the, the things that you can go buy off of a pharmacy shelf? Is there anything to be concerned with with those? 
Well, just because it's not in a prescription that's written by your provider, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have side effects. And so a lot of people will have an ailment and they will go online or they will listen to a commercial and go and pick up that pill. And that pill can have a lot of bad side effects. So for example, as we get older, many people tend to have trouble sleeping. So then they will see these advertisements for pills that will help you get a good night's sleep. But they don't realize that when you get older, those pills can actually slow down your brain function or make you more likely to fall if you were to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Uh, people might have aches and pains. Arthritis is very, very common. Just about all of us will get some sort of arthritis at some point or another. And they like to advertise, just take two little pills. And that's good enough. But those two little pills, if you have diabetes or high blood pressure, can cause kidney problems. They can increase your risk of stroke or a heart attack or a bleeding ulcer. So just because you can get it without a prescription doesn't mean that it's right for you or that it doesn't have side effects that could be dangerous. Can you learn what you need to know by reading the label or is it better to ask your physician before you start taking a vitamin or a supplement or something off the shelf? Well, it is very hard to have enough information and experience to know what medicines make sense for you. So there's, there's one column for knowing the side effects and having the ability to read the label, which is important, but you also want somebody who's had experience using these medications in large numbers of people for many years, because there are some things that may not be on the label or interactions that you may not be aware of just by reading the label. So yes, you should definitely read the label, but there's more information that's important. Well, can you give us some advice for the kinds of questions someone should ask their provider if their provider wants to prescribe a new medication? Are there things to ask to learn that would help you learn about that particular drug? So I think it's important to be uh, clear as to what that medication is supposed to do, what potential side effects there are, what is the likelihood of those side effects, because some side effects are more common than others. Is it going to interact with any medications or any medical problems that I currently have? How long will I need to take it? How will I know when it's working? And those are some of the basics that I think that, that are important, at least to start the conversation. What should someone do if they start a new medication and then they develop some new health issue? So I always encourage people to have a conversation with the provider, the person who prescribed that medication. I have seen patients just decide to take it um, either differently or stop taking it on their own without letting anyone know. I've seen patients who are worried about the cost of a medicine, so they may cut it in half or cut it into quarters to make it last longer, and that actually can be harmful depending on the drug. So what I encourage, and I hope that patients out there have a good enough relationship with whoever is writing their prescription that they can talk about their concerns and that they have an open line of communication should anything go wrong when they're taking the pill. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the chief of geriatrics at Upstate, and we're talking about an issue that's especially important to seniors over medication. Now, Dr. Brangman, can you tell us about a study you're involved with that is looking at over-medication and what can be done about it? So right now, we uh, got funded to look at um, deprescribing. That is the process of taking medications away. 
And it has to be done in a careful way. We want to make sure that we're not stopping medicines that someone needs. And so we're working with our partners at Loretto uh, to look at newly admitted patients to the nursing home to see what medications they're on and can any of them be stopped. Now, usually when somebody is getting admitted to the nursing home, they're coming right from the hospital. And many times there are medicines that are started in the hospital that aren't needed long-term. And unless someone knows, they may continue those medications needlessly for long periods of time. So what we're trying to do is target certain medications that we know can have bad side effects in older adults and see if we can come up with an organized way of eliminating them. So that seems a logical time to do that when someone's transferring from the hospital to a nursing home. It, it kind of makes sense to kind of, I don't know, start fresh and look at what they're taking. For someone who's not in a nursing home or, or a hospital, do you recommend that they review what they're taking with their doctor? And if so, how regularly? So it really should be done every visit. Every time you go to the doctor, there should be a discussion about what medications you're taking, especially if you're going to more than one doctor and there may be more than one person prescribing medications. It's very easy for things to change very quickly. And you want to be sure to update your physician or your nurse practitioner, whoever is taking care of you, with any medicines you might have bought over the counter from the drugstore or even from some of these nutrition centers. There are many people who go to uh, nutrition centers looking for what we call natural approaches to uh, disease management. And depending on where you go, you may be talking to a store clerk who has very limited information about a disease, but may be suggesting a supplement for you to take. So it's important that if you're taking any supplements or anything that you may be buying on your own, that you have a discussion about those whenever you go to the doctor's office. So it, it seems like these medications can be a lot to manage, even if you're taking all of the right things in the right amount and they're not interacting. Do you recommend your patients use um, a medication organizer? So medication organizers are very good because if you're just taking a medicine right out of the bottle, you may not remember in a couple hours if you took it or not. And if you have those little pill organizers that usually have the days of the week on them, sometimes they have an AM or a PM. And usually I encourage patients to set those up one day a week, like say on Sunday night, so that you're all set for the week. And then when you take the pill, that little container space is empty and you know you took it. We all can get distracted and a lot of people can forget things here and there. And many medicines are very powerful and you have to take them as directed. So if you double up on them or if you even skip a dose, that could have very bad effects on your body. Well, let me ask you about some dangerous situations because I wonder how common things like this are. Have, have you had patients who had problems because they took a medication that wasn't prescribed for them? Yes. So we have patients who might share pills, um, maybe for financial reasons or somebody's trying to be helpful saying, oh, this helped me. Why don't you give it a try? And that could lead to very bad side effects. I also have um, instances where um, one medical problem leads to another one, and then that leads to another one, and then treating the first problem can make the second one worse. Or we can see problems that aren't really that serious. For example, there are some people who get very mild swelling in their ankles at the end of the day. And that often happens as we get older because the, the fluid in our, that, that circulates in our body can collect in our ankles near the end of the day. And the best way to treat that is by elevating your feet. But some people 
may get a water pill. And then the water pill makes them go to the bathroom a lot. And then they get up at night to run to the bathroom and they get dizzy because they're losing so much water and they're a little dehydrated. So then they complain to their doctor that they're dizzy. So then they get a medication for dizziness. And that medication for dizziness can make your blood pressure go down really low when you stand up. And then you can fall and have a very bad injury. So you can see how one problem can lead to another, especially if the first problem didn't really need a pill in the first place and could have been managed another way. You've just described probably the types of patients you deal with all day in, in geriatrics, right? So it's very, very common because we have to separate normal aging from an actual disease process. And if we can take care of a problem without a pill, that's always the first option. But we have people who really pressure us that they want a pill. So for example, they will come in with a cold and they will want an antibiotic. And we know that most colds are due to a virus and viruses do not respond to antibiotics. And if you take too many antibiotics, it can kill off the good bacteria in your gut. And when you kill off the good bacteria in your gut, you can get serious inflammation which can lead to diarrhea and stomach pain and can sometimes be life-threatening. So I've had patients who I've told that you have a virus, it will go away with tea and honey and cough drops, and they get mad because they feel like they didn't get what they came to the doctor for. They wanted a prescription for an antibiotic. So some of this is driven by patients who want something and they expect their doc to give it to them. We're a very pill-oriented society. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned um, how people as they age may have trouble sleeping and may reach for a sleep aid of some sort. How serious is it uh, to mix alcohol with that medication? Well, first of all, there is no safe sleeping medication. Despite the advertisements you see on TV or things that you might take, um, there is no safe sleeping pill. And as you get older, that can cause even more trouble than if you're younger. And alcohol actually doesn't help you sleep well. It may make you initially drowsy, but then it wakes you up. So if you're taking these medications for sleep and then you're adding alcohol, you're causing a very bad combination in your body that is not safe. So there's uh, a lot of changes that happen in our body as we get older that makes it harder to break down alcohol so that a little bit of alcohol goes a long way so that we see people combine alcohol with sleeping medications or antidepressants or other things and they get uh, very bad side effects. This has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the chief of geriatrics at Upstate, and she's a former president of the American Geriatrics Society. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How you can see an emergency physician virtually, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People with life-threatening emergencies should call 911 or go to the nearest hospital emergency department. But people with less emergent problems are eligible for same-day teleemergency medicine telehealth visits. With me to talk about how this works is Dr. Bill Palo. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine and of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Palo. Thanks for having me. Was this telehealth service born of the pandemic? It uh, was really an outgrowth of the pandemic, to be honest. This is something that we had been exploring at Upstate for a bit. With the pandemic, things got accelerated 
because there were clearly people who wanted to come be seen in the emergency department or be seen by emergency providers who were staying away from the emergency department. So from that, uh, gave birth to this service. Some people may perceive it as more safe not to come to the hospital, to be able to stay in their home and see a physician that way. Yeah, I want to emphasize that it's very safe to be in the emergency department. But there are some people who are still reluctant to be seen in the emergency department and some people who have maybe less emergent complaints, more what we would say are urgent complaints that can be seen from the comfort of home. So are these virtual visits something that hospitals across the nation are starting to offer for emergency visits? Yes, you've seen these grow in emergency medicine as kind of a burgeoning movement in emergency medicine for about maybe five years now. But you've really seen a lot of emergency departments pick this up as part of the pandemic uh, over the past year. So what types of illnesses or injuries would you say are the are best suited for a teleemergency visit? Sure. So a lot of what we see and what we're asking for is kind of what we would consider to be an urgent care kind of complaint. So what we've tried to tell people is if you were thinking about going to an urgent care, um, instead consider seeing us because you can see us from the comfort of your home. So cuts and scrapes, skin infections, medication refills, those sorts of things are perfect for this type of service. I know that people can find details from the website upstate.edu slash emergency. I know you've got all the details about this, and there's a phone number that people can call to make an appointment, 315-464-5577. But first, I've got a bunch of questions about how this works. Do, do you have to have access to a computer, or will a smartphone work? Um, a smartphone will work. We, you can do this from any device. So you can do it from a computer, from a laptop, or from uh, a smartphone. What we ask is that you do it from something that has a camera, because obviously we want to see you. Um, and it's amazing what you can see even with a smartphone. I've been able to see the backs of people's throats just as well as if they were coming to see me for their sore throats. Wow. So you can kind of do it from any device. You can do it on the, your front porch on a smartphone, but we just ask that you have something that has a camera. Um, now, what hours is this available? So right now we are 1 o'clock p.m. till 9 o'clock p.m. seven days a week. And are there age limits? Do you see children, adults, uh, elderly? What's the age range? We will, we will see anybody. So once I call or go online and make an appointment time, what happens then? Do I, do I wait for a call or, or do I need to place a call at a certain time? How does that work? So once your appointment is established, a link is generated for you and that link gets sent to you um, and you click that link and then you're automatically in our waiting room. Um, from there, the physician will take you out of the waiting room, virtual waiting room, and will see you um, online. So you don't have to do anything. All you do is click a link. Um, once you click that link, you will be connected to a physician for a 15-minute visit, during which time we'll take a full history and physical, do a complete physical exam. We're able to diagnose and then treat. We're also able to order prescriptions to your pharmacy. It could be your local pharmacy or a mail-in pharmacy. We can order blood work, we can order x-rays and CAT scans, and we can schedule follow-up appointments or refer you to specialists should you need them. So how do you instruct people to be prepared for their appointment once they've sure. scheduled it? Um, what do they need to get in order? Um, Surprisingly, the biggest barrier has been a lot to do with people understanding how cameras work. So one of the things that we suggest is that you get to an area where when you look at yourself on your video, you have a good frame of yourself. Don't sit in front of a very bright window because the camera will pick up that bright window and make you much darker and then it becomes really hard to see you. So we want you in a well-lit area. There's nothing else to do that you would prepare for any other physician visit. Have the camera ready, have the lights on you so we can see you and just be prepared to talk to us. So would you recommend uh, a parent who's got the visit set up for their child, they just need to have the baby on their lap or at least in yeah. front of the camera, right, somehow? Correct. What we're asking is for them to be in a well-lit area. So say you wanted to show us your child's rash. We want to be able to see it. So one of the best ways is having the child on your lap, your camera accessible in such a way that we could see exactly what's going on.
Now, this may sound like a silly question, but will I be able to see the physician at the same time they're seeing me? Yeah. In a lot of ways, people have gotten used to the way this will work because it's almost like having a Zoom or WebEx or Google Meet chat. You'll see me, I'll see you, and we'll be able to communicate just like we were in person. Now, how do I know that there's no one else that's able to hack into this appointment? How do I know that it's, you know, just between me and the provider? So uh, the application that we use is encrypted. In other words, it prevents other people from seeing what we're talking about. It's completely HIPAA compliant, um, and it's as safe as we could possibly make it, uh, given the telemedicine visits of 2020. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Bill Palo, an associate professor of emergency medicine and of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. And we're talking about teleemergency medicine visits. So how do you take vitals from a distance, the pulse and the, and the heart rate and that sort of thing? So we're asking the patients to be actively involved in their care when it comes to that. Obviously, we don't expect that you're going to have some of the devices we have in the hospital, like a pulse oximeter or what have you. But when it comes to very simple things like potentially blood pressure or even more basic, a pulse rate, we teach you how to do that if we think it's relevant to what we're talking about. A lot of times, though, the big thing that we'll ask you to do is take your temperature. So if you have a thermometer at home, we just ask that you use it, particularly if you're calling us about something related to a potential infection. Now, the website says that all health insurance is accepted. Do you know if all health insurers are paying the same way that they would if I went, you know, in, in person to the emergency department? That's correct. For the pandemic, and then it's been extended, uh, essentially these visits are akin to emergency department visits. So it's the same thing as the emergency department. So the copay is probably the same too? Correct. Now, if I think you mentioned if if I need an X-ray, um, you're able to order that. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So in That's other correct. things that lab work, that sort of thing. That's correct. You will be ordered it. A requisition is generated, and you can go to any of Upstate's labs, either at the hospital or at any of the satellite sites, and get your blood work and your X-rays done. Now, what if my problem requires a specialist, say a urologist, if I need like a, a consult from a urologist, how does that work? So we can refer you um, to urology. If we feel obviously at any point that you need an emergent consultation or an emergent being seen by somebody, uh, we'll refer to the emergency department right away. And important for your uh, listeners to note, we don't bill you twice for that. If you get seen by tele-emergency medicine and we decide you need to be seen by the emergency department, you will only get the emergency department side of it. We don't then bill also for tele-emergency medicine. If you need to be seen by a subspecialist, we can refer you to them. If we think you need to be seen right away, we'll obviously tell you to go to the emergency department. So have you seen a patient via tele-emergency that you felt like, oh, they really need to come in and be seen? Yes, I have. So that does happen. That does. Um, you know, things that people need to be cautious about calling us for that we always will tell you to go to the emergency department for would be stroke-like symptoms, chest pain, things like that. Um, and that if we see any of that, the odds are we're going to tell you there's only so much we can do on a televisit to go be seen right away by somebody in person. Now, what if I have abdominal pain? Is that something where I would need you to see me in person so you could feel my abdomen? Potentially. Um, some of the, you know, obviously we're going to be limited because touching a belly makes a huge difference in what we do as physicians. But if you have some minor complaints, um, some nonspecific abdominal pain that maybe you've had for a long time that you need worked up, we're capable of doing those things. But if we get any hint that this is something like appendicitis or diverticulitis or a gallbladder problem, we're going to tell you to run over to the emergency department to get that checked out right away. Now, if I have a chronic health condition, will the physician be able to access my previous medical records? Yeah, we can access any records you have at SUNY Upstate. So any up university hospital or university hospital affiliate physicians or practices, we're able to access those records. Now, what do you do? I, I apologize for throwing all of these what ifs out there, but that seems like that's what emergency medicine is. Um, what do you do with a patient who, if they were in the emergency department with you, 
maybe you'd want to keep them there for a while under observation just to see and decide what, you know, whether to admit them or not. What do you do with that kind of patient who does a telehealth visit? Sure. If there's a time sensitive nature, obviously, let me let me preface this with anything that I thought was emergent or needed observation, I would send to the emergency department. But if there is a time sensitive nature, let's say you have an infection on your skin and I want to see how big it's gotten. A lot of times we tell you to go see your private doctor for what we call a wound check. What we can do with this type of service is say, if you can't get in to see your doctor in a day, let's say 24 hours to be looked at again, we'll schedule you for a second appointment so we can look at it again to say this has not gotten any worse, continue the course of antibiotics that we prescribed you, then you could see your doctor when he or she becomes available in their office. What sort of feedback have you received from patients so far since this has been offered? It's been really positive. You know, on the I'll say on the patient end, they've really enjoyed it. You know, sitting on your front porch and being seen by your physician is a, is an easy thing to do. And from our end, from the emergency physician end, we love it because in the emergency room, we're so pressed for time because there's so many sick people that we want to take care of. With this type of service, we're able to sit with you for 15 straight minutes without any distractions and just pay attention to you. So from our end, it's also very satisfying as well because it gives us a chance to really sit and talk to people. So do you think that visits like this sort of um, impact the doctor-patient relationship in a positive way? I do. Um, I think having access to physicians quicker, not having to sit in a waiting room, not having to leave your home for something that would be a urgent or minor complaint is, is going to be one of the legacies of this pandemic. Um, the less you have to go out and interact, the less you have to spend extra time in your day taking away from work, from your family and whatnot, to be seen by a physician for a quick complaint can be very much utilized over here where we can see you and the convenience of your home and not take you away from work or your family. Well, there's a lot of positive. It seems like, you know, it avoids a trip to the hospital and the parking and the, uh, you know, exposure to others in the waiting room and that sort of thing. Are there any downsides that you see for the telehealth visits? The biggest downside has to do with cameras and being able to see exactly what's going on. So obviously the number one downside is I can't touch you. So what's like you alluded to earlier, when I'm looking at a belly, touching a belly makes a huge difference in how a physician thinks about abdominal pain. That said, the biggest downside is going to be the limitations of what a camera provides and the lighting in which you find yourself. So if it comes to really fine diagnostic skills and want to see something really close, some people have wonderful smartphones and cameras and lighting that makes everything perfect, but we all live in the real world where that's not always going to be the case. So sometimes it's not as perfect in terms of what I can see that I wish it would be. Otherwise though, and that's a minor complaint. Otherwise though, it's been really successful for the physicians and the patients that have utilized the service. Now, during the pandemic, I know there's some people who've been really afraid to go places where there are lots of people, including doctor's offices or the emergency department. So I wanted to ask you to talk about what measures are in place in the emergency department that keep patients safe? Sure. Um, much like I alluded to earlier, we have gone out of our way to make sure that you're safe when you come to the hospital. So number one, um, everybody that has a COVID type complaint gets a private room. So that means if you've got cough, shortness of breath, or the growing list of COVID associated complaints, even if you've lost your smell or your taste, you get a private room. Um, in addition, everybody is masked in the hospital. So you have a mask on you, our, we have a mask on us, housekeeping has masks, we all are wearing masks. We keep you in safe private rooms, we're all masked. Everybody gets, when we go to see you, we change into personal protective equipment that gets disposed of in between. So it's about as safe as you can make it. In fact, I would tell you it's a less chaotic environment and safer than going into a department store or going to the grocery store. Oh, very good to know. This has been very informative. I'm glad to know this service is available. Thank you so much to Dr. Bill Palo. He's an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurosurgeon tells about a new robotic tool for brain surgery.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me to talk about a new robotic tool for brain surgery is Dr. G. Dumani Reddy. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery and the director of adult functional neurosurgery at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reddy. Thanks for having me, Amber. So the tool we're going to talk about is um, called the ROSA Brain Robot, ROSA standing for Robotic Surgical Assistant. But before I ask you about what it does, let's review a little about epilepsy. How common is this neurological disease? Yes, yeah, so the best evidence we have for that comes from the Center for Disease Control, the CDC. Uh, you know, every few years, they send out a national health survey to assess how many people in the United States have epilepsy. And from that recent data in 2015, we know that approximately 1.2% of the population has it. So in the United States, that's about 3,500,000 people. And that's about 3 million adults and 500,000 children that we know have it in the U.S. So in a state like New York, it's about 200,000 adults and 25,000 children. Wow. Well, now what are the symptoms of epilepsy? Right. So, you know, it's very varied. So I, I, I would say that most people probably have some uh, conception of what an epileptic patient looks like when they're having a seizure. I know it's in, it's in the media kind of uh, a lot, particularly in TV shows and movies when patients have seizures. You kind of see them fall to the ground and shaking. Well, that turns out to be a very specific type of seizure called a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So there's two categories of seizures. One is generalized, which means it affects your entire brain and really affects every aspect of it. And you really can't do anything while you're having a seizure like that. The other type is called a partial seizure or focal seizure. And in those seizures, you can lose consciousness sometimes. When that happens, we call it a, a complex partial seizure. But if you don't lose consciousness, we call it a simple partial seizure. And in those situations, when you have just a partial seizure, it might just be one part of your body that's acting abnormally. Maybe your arm starts to shake or your or your leg starts to shake, or you feel some tingling in your arms or tingling in your legs, and then, you know, it comes and goes periodically. It sounds like different types of seizures, but epilepsy means that you have seizures of some sort? Exactly. So the diagnosis of epilepsy means that you've had basically more than two unprovoked seizures in greater than a 24-hour period. But the type of seizures you can have can be very varied. You can have a simple seizure, which is kind of what we describe, where it just affects one part of your body, and or you can have a, a generalized seizure that you know, affects the entire body. And then you can have some seizures that start out as simple or focal uh, and then progress to be generalized. We call that uh, a seizure with secondary generalization. Is this something that uh, people are born with? Because you, you mentioned there's children that have epilepsy. Are they born with the disease or is this something that might develop later in life? Well, it's a little bit of both. So that's true is that, uh, you know, the, Children can be born with the disease. We know there are some genetic, genetic conditions that lead to it. One of the symptoms that, syndromes that we, we know of is something called Dravet's syndrome. Uh, and it's basically caused by an, a mutated sodium channel. So sodium is very important in setting the excitability levels of your cells. So in patients who have this mutated channel, they tend to be hyper excitable. Their cells and their brains tend to be hyper excitable and predisposes them to seizures. That being said, on the other side of the coin, we know that if you've had a prior traumatic brain insult, for example, like if you had Trump, uh, you were in a car accident or had some sort of injury to your head, you have a 50% chance of developing seizures afterwards. So we know that you can develop seizures secondary to an event that happened, and it's not uncommon after a traumatic brain injury or a stroke or some sort of hemorrhage in your brain that you develop seizures following that. One of the more common reasons that we see as surgeons is patients who have tumors in their brains. They can develop seizures secondary to their tumors. Now, is epilepsy usually treatable with medication? For the most part, yes, actually, we would, uh, the best studies we have suggest that about approximately 70% of patients can be treated uh, with medications, meaning that their seizures stop. Once you're on a medication, your, your seizures are controlled, you don't have any. That being said, we know that if one medication doesn't work, usually the addition of more than two is very ineffective. So once you get to about two, three medications, adding any more is usually unlikely to help. So when might surgery become a recommendation for someone? Right, so surgery fills in that other 30%. So, you know, you, you know, 70% is a great number, but 30% of, you know, 3 million people in the United States or 200,000 people in the state of New York is still a lot. That's basically 60,000 people who have persistent seizures despite medications. And for those patients is where surgery becomes uh, an, uh, 
option. And also in some patients who take medication, they have side effects from the medications they can't tolerate. Most notably, some, some epilepsy medications can make you drowsy or sleepy and some patients can't tolerate it. Uh, and in those patients, surgery is also an option. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neurosurgeon Dr. G. Dumani Reddy, and we're talking about the new Rosa Brain Robot. So let's talk about the surgical options for epilepsy. How long has surgery been an option? When, when were the first surgeries done for epilepsy? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, you know, there's been some sort of documentation for a long time. Uh, you know, we first have the documentation that epilepsy might be secondary to second uh, seizures themselves might be secondary to a disease of the brain from Hippocrates, founders of medicine, who kind of first led us away from the idea that these people were just possessed, they actually might have a disease in the brain that we could treat. When we first started treating surgically, surgically uh, kind of consistently, it was at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, basically, it was done in Queen Square in London. There was a young neurosurgeon, 29 years old, named Dr. Victor Horsley, who had a patient that was run over uh, by a cab when he was a baby. And uh, approximately five years later, he started developing horrible seizures. And they were partial seizures, the seizures we were talking about. They were only affecting kind of one arm. And so, uh, you know, he was working with a, a neurologist colleague at the time named Dr. Jackson, who's also very prominent in our field. And they had the idea that maybe there was something wrong with the brain that they could treat. And so Dr. Horsley took the patient back, and he opened up the, the skull, and he found that there was a scar uh, near the area of the brain that controls the, the movement. Uh, so it made sense that if that area of the brain was hyper-excitable, secondary to that scar, that potentially that could be leading to seizures. So he took it out, uh, removed the scar, and the patient was seizure-free. And that, uh, you know, that kind of led the way for, for the rest of us. There. So is, is that the goal or the intent of the surgery, to remove uh, scar tissue? or? Yeah, so uh, our goal in, in surgical treatment of epilepsy is to, to get them seizure-free. And sometimes for us, it, it's helpful if we can see on an MRI that there's a portion of the brain that is abnormal. The more modern treatment of it, though, it doesn't necessarily require it to be abnormal or to look abnormal on an MRI. It's just that if we can identify it as functionally abnormal, we can still resect it. Usually these areas of brain that are just functionally abnormal, all they do is cause seizures. They don't necessarily are involved in any of those or aspect of the brain function. And in that case, then really not a help for the patient to have it in place and we just go and kind of take it out or nowadays we can you know put a fiber optic probe and laserly ablate it with a laser so you don't need such a big surgery but in any sense we try to basically try to, to remove it get it all out of the out of the, the functioning brain so can you describe how the rosa brain robot works how do you use that right so it kind of fits into this second uh, aspect that we were talking about where these patients who present don't have something structurally abnormal in their brain, but we can kind of localize where their seizures are coming from to a specific area of the brain. When that happens, what we can do is we can actually put probes in, electrodes, which are leads that have electrical contacts with them. And then we put them in the brain in the locations that we think the seizures are coming from. We try to identify exactly where that seizure is coming from. And in that case, even if the patient has a normal looking brain on an MRI, but we can identify using those probes where those seizures are originating from, we can basically resect that area of that brain or ablate that area of the brain. And that's where really the ROSA comes in, is that uh, the more of these probes you can put in, the more accurate you can get in the location of the seizure foci. And so the ROSA robot helps us put in very accurately you know, multiple probes in very kind of delicate locations of the brain without causing injury. Is it a safe procedure? Or, or what are the risks, I should say? Yeah, I wish I could tell you, I wish I could say it was a hundred percent safe, but unfortunately no no surgery is. There's always a risk of infection, there's a risk of bleeding, there's a risk of damage to the surrounding structure, most notably a portion of the brain that's important for speech or for movement or for sensation. The benefit of the Rosa, I mean that was the the risks before we had the robot. The benefit of the robot is that because we can so accurately place these leads where we want them to be placed, all these risks are lower because we can avoid Vessels we see on imaging, and we know that if we avoid vessels, the risk of bleeding is lower. We can avoid important structures of the brain that we, we see on imaging. That leads to less likelihood of a postoperative deficit. But there are still risks, unfortunately. So if you use the ROSA brain robot, does that alleviate opening up, doing like a craniotomy where you open up 
the skull? So in one sense it does, because before we had the robot, before we could place these uh, electrodes that kind of just go through the skull into the brain, what we used to have to do is place kind of larger grids. We'd have to open up the skull, place a large grid, which is laid on the surface of the brain. And that would, uh, you know, require a big surgery. And sometimes those patients, when we did that, we couldn't find a foci for their seizures. And then we would have to kind of take off the grid, but we couldn't do any surgery to resect it. So they'd end up having a craniotomy for, you know, for not, and no essential treatment for their, for their seizures. With the Rosa robot, we can now kind of place depth electrodes. Uh, which doesn't require that large craniotomy. It's just kind of small burrows in the skull to place these electrodes. Truth be told, you know, we were doing that before uh, we actually had the robot. We would just kind of put these electrodes in manually. We'd kind of calculate the trajectories by hand, and we would had a, a frame that would give us numbers on where to put the, um, each electrode. You know, it would took a lot longer because we had to physically adjust uh, these positions for each electrode, and there was a lot more room for error because we were you know, calculating each individual tract individually by hand. It's a lot of room for kind of arithmetic error that, that could lead to a malplaced electrode. But with the Rosa robot, it's a, it's a, a lot easier. Those trajectories are calculated by the robot. The robot goes exactly where you need it to go, and then you just kind of drill the hole and put the electrode in. Well, it seems like there's more room for precision with the robot. Yes. Well, tell me from a patient's point of view, how do you instruct someone to prepare for this operation? Right. So the important thing is that, uh, you know, they kind of understand that the, this first surgery that we do with the robot is basically to help us characterize where the seizure foci are coming from. So it's not a surgery they should expect afterwards that, you know, they'll have a reduction in their seizure frequency. Uh, it's really just to help us find where that seizure foci is originating from. And in that sense, you know, this surgery, this first surgery doesn't require a lot in the operating room. You still come in, we still put you to sleep, and then we drill some holes in your skull. And then when you wake up, you have your head wrapped, and then outside of the wrap come, has, you have this collection of wires, and each of these wires connects to an individual electrode in your brain. And then after that, you go to the, uh, you go to the EMU, which is our epilepsy monitoring unit, where you stay for a period of time while we wait for you to have seizures. We want you to have these seizures while your electrodes are in place so we can kind of closely identify where they're coming from. And once you've had a few kind of characteristic seizures for you, if we can identify the location, then we take the electrodes out. And then the next surgery is whether we can do either a resective surgery or an ablative surgery if possible, where we find the area that was kind of hyperactive on the electrodes and, and ablate it or take it out. So when you say resect, that means remove the tissue? Yeah, sometimes it's easier if it's a large area, it's easier to remove rather than trying to ablate with a fiber optic probe. If it's a small area that's very localized, we can, we can just ablate it with a fiber optic probe. Wow. What is recovery like for patients, and how soon after this do they see a difference? Right. So it's recovery from the, uh, the actual procedure with the placing the depth electrodes with the bros, it doesn't take that long. Usually you're kind of back to normal by the next day. But you're in the hospital just kind of getting your seizures recorded. And once we remove the electrodes, we typically send our patients home the next day. So they'll remove the electrodes at bedside. They don't have to go back to the operating room for that. And then we send them home the next day. And then when they come back for their procedure, if it's a laser ablation procedure, a procedure where we just put the fiber octa probe, typically it's just an overnight stay. You can go home the next day. If it's a procedure where we actually have to do a craniotomy and open up the skull to resect a larger area, you used to stay in the hospital about two to three days, basically until you're back on your feet and can uh, can manage to take care of yourself at home. Oh. Well, this has been very interesting. I thank you for sharing this with us. Thank you to Dr. T. Dumani Reddy. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery and the director of adult functional neurosurgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Ellen Goldsmith is Professor Emeritus at CUNY. She now lives in Cushing, Maine. Her poem, I Am Now an Understudy,
helps us envision how coronavirus has changed so much, yet she concludes with a childhood memory most of us can appreciate and enjoy. I am now an understudy for the part I was to play this spring, a flurry of cancellations, classes, book groups, dinners, Passover Seder, no entrance to the rooms I would have inhabited. Instead, in my house, I move from room to room straightening as I can't the mess of the virus. And what's understudy? How to stay steady? How to replace the term for what we're doing? Physical, not social distancing. How to find pleasure? So much more time for baking and walking without eclipsing the dark source of this newfound time. How to go deeper into the mystery of time, taking time, saving time, losing time. And what about the 11th hour? I remember the long car rides, how my parents laughed when before even reaching the Holland Tunnel, I would ask, are we there yet? This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about hemorrhoids. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.